Judges chapter 6 this morning. For those keeping track, we did just jump over Judges chapter 5. I will make mention of that in just a second, uh, explain what happened and why we're just going to skip it. Uh, anyway, Judges 6, before we dive into any of this, last week I made mention about how we often, we Westerners, we Americans, we 2023, whatever that looks like, uh, we often miss some of these hyperlinks that are in the Bible. We often miss the, here's this idea, here's this word that should draw us back to something else. And so, unintended, I didn't know how a discussion group was going to go, but I feel like last week in discussion group, we talked a lot about different things in the passages we've seen in Judges and, and how they relate and look almost exactly identical to what we've seen in the book of Exodus. And, and so, like, kudos to you guys, like, good work. Uh, I want to bring up a different topic, though, of just different ideas of Western thought, Eastern thought, 2023, Bible times, just, okay, because what happens is, at least for Americans, I don't know if I can speak for the whole Western culture, but at least for Americans, we land on this, we do things right. Okay, so, so what does that mean? It means not, the rest of the world just doesn't do things differently, like the rest of the world does things wrong, right? So, so I feel like one of the common ones is we drive on the right side of the road. And, and we don't tell people they drive on the left side of the road. We tell people they drive on the wrong side of the road, right? Like, so, so we as Americans, we have a way we think. We have a way we do things. Our, our version of sports is better than your version. Like, whatever it is, okay? Uh, so, Western thought, Eastern thought. In Western thought, we like things, especially when it comes to the Bible. We like things to be real nice and neat and tidy. And, and, we, can, and we can put them on, in a box. Like, like everything's, all the loose ends are wrapped up. Everything looks good. Like, like some theologian on, on Western thought would be like, good, no loose ends. Every answer, every question is answered. Okay, and, and Eastern thought comes to the Bible. Like, hey, this, this text is a little bit messy. Like, there's a lot of loose ends. And they're like, cool. Like, let's talk about it. Let's discuss that. Let's, let's walk through that. Let's look at it from different angles. Like, let's, like, I feel like Western thought, it's like, can you ask a question? No, it all fit in the box. Like, there's no question to be asked. All the loose ends have been answered. Eastern thought, let's talk about it. Let's, let's break it down even more. Let's, let's, let's embrace a little bit of the mess. Okay, so, so when we dive into to the story of Gideon, right, that's what we're going to see. We're going to have two weeks of Gideon. He's got three chapters or so. We're going to try and knock all that out in two weeks. We dive in the story of Gideon, and not just Gideon, but throughout all of Judges. But I feel like Gideon's one of the first times where we're going to encounter someone who's like, okay, Gideon, good guy, right? And so we put him over here, because we're thinking, like, put him in a box type of mentality, right? But, but it, the, then we read the whole story, and it's like, okay, Gideon starts off in the good box, but he ends in a bad box. But then halfway in the middle, it's like, well, this looked good, but the Bible didn't tell us if it was good or not good, so I don't know what to do with that, because there's some part of it that seems like it was bad. And so all of a sudden, it's like, is Gideon a good guy or he's not a good guy? And Joel in Discussion Group wants to remind us of Hebrews 11 saying Gideon's in the hall of faith. And we're like, yeah, understandable. And yet at the end of his life, we were like, no way. By the end of his life, we would put him in the hall of faith. Like he leads Israel to, to more idolatry and corruption and all those things. And, and so for us, I feel like my mentality growing up would be like, okay, Gideon, good or bad, Here's where we put him. And, and now everything I, I, I do is he's going to be in this box of a good guy. So I got to reinterpret things or I got to change things. Or I got to somehow keep every. Okay, that's us. That's America. That's 2023. The original audience isn't worried about Gideon being a good guy or a bad guy. Not, like, like this is a lesson to learn about what to do. This is a lesson to learn about who our God is. And, and the, the story of, of Gideon that sometimes seems good, sometimes seems bad, blatantly bad blatantly good like like that's fine we can just work our way through this 
We don't have to land on, on a certain spot or not. Like, it's okay to wrestle. Okay, so, so all of this is coming from what? It's coming from probably the last couple of years of reading different books, different podcasts. There's online classes that I've taken. And at some point, I'm going to compile all these uh, and make a list. It's not that many. It's probably six or seven resources that I've used. Uh, and, and just be able to say, hey, here they are. If you want to use them, if you want to listen to them, if you want to read them, uh, make them available to you. But this idea of Jewish thought, the idea of how we just see the Bible differently. Okay, one last thing that's not necessarily related to our text this morning, but I just feel like I'm going to share it just because it fits with this idea of wrestling and a story that seems a little messy. Um, if you were to write a story about your life, and, and maybe not just your life, but your family's lives. So, so however far back you came over on a boat, maybe some of you are new enough that your families came over on an airplane. Uh, but like you go back to the boat ride and you write, the, okay, you just naturally because you're biased and you love your family, probably, uh, would write really good things, right? Like, here's the business they started. Here's the success stories. Here's people they've helped. Here's, look at the good, look at the good, look at the good, right? Very rarely would you be like, let me tell you a story about all the horrible things that happened in my family's history, right? Let me, let me, just, let me just lay it all out there for the world to know of, of just horrible thing after horrible thing. Like, it's going to kind of tarnish my name even. Uh, okay, when we get to Old Testament, it's the story of God, we know that, but it's also the story of Israel. And God used people of Israel to write the story. Okay? They don't write a story as I would write a story of here's the greatest things the McNaughton family has ever done. Right? They write a story like, hey, here's our ups and here's our downs. And, and if we're honest, there's a lot of downs. And maybe even more downs than ups. Okay? And, and so for Jewish thought, this is Eastern thought, maybe more than just Jewish. Eastern thought would be what? Here's a weird, I'm going to use that word because I was born in the 80s and I don't have a bigger vocabulary. Here's a weird story. Unusual, unexpected, whatever that fits. Okay, it's weird. I feel like we have a tendency to gloss over weird. Right? Oh, that's weird. That must have been some cultural thing back then. Weird. Uh, unusual, unexpected, not that great. Like, let's just, okay. They say, hey, this is weird. This was in here for a reason. Right? We're not going to write a weird story about our, our family history and then just be like, oh, we don't know why they put it in there. Gloss up. No, it is weird. We want to know why it's in here. Okay? So I feel like Judges, Old Testament in general, there's going to be certain stories that we just reread in our own Bible reading. We're going to get into in Judges. Man, this is weird. And our tendency is going to be like, well, that's what they did you know, 5,000 years ago. That's what they did in that culture. Blah, blah, blah. And we just kind of gloss over it. And it's like, no, no, no. That's where they would park. Like, that's where they say, hey, we want to do this. Okay, so all that to say, uh, hopefully this helps, not just the judges, hopefully it helps as we would read our Bible. What we're going to do this morning, uh, let's talk about Judges 5. You don't have to turn there necessarily, we're not going to read any of it. But Judges 5 is called the Song of Deborah and Barak, or Barak. I look up all these words in Hebrew and they tell you how to say it, and that just makes it worse for me. Um, so don't ever repeat how I pronounce it, it's probably wrong. Um, anyway, Song of Deborah and Barak. Okay, what is the song about? It's the song of victory of what God has done. Okay, now in our minds, just again, just church, we sing, we sang some really good songs this morning, like Bible is full of songs, right? There's a book of Psalms that's a lot of them were meant to be sung. Like we just think like songs fit with God, songs fit with God's people. So therefore there's a lot of songs in the Bible. Okay, uh, most likely depends on how you want to define some of these things. This is probably the second or third song in the Bible, right? Like that's recorded in scripture. Go all the way back to Genesis. You got no songs in Genesis. Okay, you got a song in Exodus. Okay, so the first song recorded in the Bible is the song of Moses, which took place when? When they crossed over the Red Sea. Okay, what, what took place? God ruined the Egyptian army, which was full of chariots. How did he do that? He did it with water. Here's a song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5. 
When do they sing the song? After God takes down the enemy. How did he take down the enemy? With iron chariots? With, with a bunch of water. Okay, what's the connection besides that? I don't, I don't know. But I feel like over and over again, here's these hyperlinks that are pointing us from Judges back to Exodus, and here's another one. There's not that many songs up to this point in Judges, and, and these two are the same. So what we could do is we could park in Judges 5 for probably a couple weeks and compare, I think it's Exodus 15, though I didn't write it down, I, I, but the song in Exodus with Moses and this song, and we could compare them. We could, okay, we're not going to do that. I'm just going to make mention that you should probably read it, uh, and there's going to be parts that are messy. And we're going to be like, hmm, I don't know what to do with that. Okay, and that's all fair, and that's all good. Uh, I just said earlier in this intro, like, we don't want to just gloss over things, and I understand I just said that, and then I just said we're skipping Judges 5, okay? So, whatever. Duly noted, we just skipped Judges 5, okay? Judges 6. Um, we're going to do what we did last week. Just, I feel like with narrative, that's maybe the best way to do it. So, instead of reading 40 verses right in a row, and then going back and talking about it, Let's, let's just take it paragraph by paragraph. But the goal is to get through Judges 6. This is the life of Gideon. Uh, life of Gideon is often split up into three sections. Section 1 will be what we do today. I, I, I feel like, again, we don't want to be so neat and tidy. I don't think there's three sections. I feel like there's more than that. There's more struggle. Uh, but what we see is we're going to see him with Baal. We're going to see him with Midian. And we're going to see him with Israel. I, I would tack on the end is that we're also going to see Gideon with himself. And there's this battle in his, in, with himself. Um, more in my mind, more so than with Israel. Okay, but what we're going to do today is, is Gideon, uh, chapter six. Next week, we're going to shoot for Judges seven and half of eight, and we'll finish the story of Gideon because I feel like we need to get uh, most of that done. Probably more than half of eight. Okay, but that's that's where we're headed. Okay, let's get into Judges six. Though. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them in the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midians would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Okay, let's just talk about what we just read. There's Midian. Uh, who are Midian? Like, who are these people? They are the, uh, the, the line from Abraham. Genesis 25, Abraham has a wife. Uh, her name is Keturah, and Keturah has a son named Midian, and here is that, like, here's his, his people. Okay, so, so in some weird way, they're like in-law, cousins, whatever relationship this would be. Uh, who are the Malachites? We see Malachites throughout the Promised Land, uh, all the way back in Exodus. They leave Egypt, and here's the Malachites who are already doing work against them. Okay, what do we see in verses 1 through 6, though? Because of Midian, because of the Malachites, what is Israel doing? They're hiding in caves. Like seven years of being oppressed. It's, it's pretty much what... I feel like the first six verses I have laid out for us is pretty much a famine. But it's not because of lack of rain. It's not because the soil's not good. It's because every time there's some sort of crap to harvest, Midian and the Amalekites beat them to it, and they just wipe it clean. Sounds like your animals are not your animals anymore. Like they take whatever they want so that there's nothing left. Okay, so now, now you're living in caves with, with famine-like conditions because of these people. 
Okay, I've made comments of other passages. I want to just read this other passage this morning. So in Deuteronomy verses, uh, chapter 28, verses 29 through 31, say this. And you will not, this is God saying to Israel, like you're going into the promised land, right? Deuteronomy is not that far away from Judges, uh, not that far from Joshua leading people into the promised land, okay? So here's Deuteronomy, and what does God say? He says, if you follow other gods, and you do what these other gods command you to do, and you give your life to them, this is what God says is going to happen. You will not prosper in your ways, but you shall be oppressed and robbed continually, with none to save you. You will betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you, and you will not be rest- and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you will have no one to save you. This, I feel like Deuteronomy 28 and Judges 6. Right? Like this isn't, I don't want to downplay what Israel is going through, but at some level, I feel like this shouldn't be a shock to you. Like if you knew Deuteronomy 28, if you knew what God said to Moses and the people there, like, like you are living through this. And it's horrible. And it's terrible. And I'm not trying to say it's not. But it's like God, God gave you the heads up. Right? And so I just want to keep Deuteronomy 28, though, in the back of our mind as we continue to read through this story. Okay, so verse 6, what do we see? We've seen it every time so far. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And then what did they do? Is they cried to the Lord. At some level, I don't know if this is just my 2023 America where I grew up type of thinking, but at some level, I'm ready for the word cried to mean more than cried. Right, I'm ready for this word to be like, cried and repent, cried and turned, cried and did something. Like, and yet it's never meant more than cried. Throughout all of the judges so far, it's never meant more than just called out for help. Okay, verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and brought from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Okay, a couple of thoughts. Last week, what did we see? We saw Deborah. Who was Deborah? Deborah's a prophetess. First time we've seen somebody not a judge. Right? I mean, kind of labeled a judge, but not the judge that we've seen. Uh, not the judge that was military leader, leading people through victory in battle. Like, okay, she's prophetess. What do we see here? We see verse 7. Uh, they cry out for help. And what does God send in verse 8? He sends a prophet. We don't know his name. We don't know much about him. But what's the picture that I feel like the author of Judges is painting here? I think the picture, in my mind, is, is you have Othniel, you have Ehud, you even have Shamgar. They deliver, they bring peace to the land, peace to the land, peace to the land. Now here's Deborah, a prophetess. Now here's Judges 6 with a prophet. Part of me thinks God is saying, the author of Judges is saying, Israel, you need more than just a deliverer. Like Israel, you need more than just someone to deliver you from Midian. You need someone more than just to deliver you from the twice evil king and the the well-fed kind of fat king. Like you need more than just that. Like you're missing the point, Israel. You need someone that would come and free you from sin and from that slavery. Okay, what do we see that he says? He says, remember, I, like, here's God. What did he do? He brought you out of Egypt. Like over and over again, we sang that song, Ebenezer's, like over and over again. What is Israel looking back to? They're looking back to Egypt. 
They're looking back to, to, to the Red Sea. They're looking back to the, the ten plagues, like over and over again. That's, that's what they're looking to. Here's the God who's greater than all the other gods of Egypt. Here's the God who's greater than all the other kingdoms and powers, right? So here's Egypt. I delivered you from them. I dispossessed them. I gave them your land. It says there in verse 10, I am the Lord, your God. Like there's a relationship. We stood at Mount Sinai and we made an oath, you and, 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 and Israel. We made this oath, like we would, you would, I would be your God and you would be my people. And then he says what? You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Okay, that word fear, here's, here's part of the wrestle, here's part of the struggle. We read that word, and, and in the Hebrew, it, it can mean two different things, and it can mean the same two different things I feel like today, that we might not use them that way. One, it can mean fear like you're afraid of, trembling, knees knocking, I'm, I'm scared. But it can also mean fear as in worship, and awe, and wonder, and majestic beauty, those things. Okay, so, so you read the text, and you say, God says what? He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear, okay? So it's easy for us to say, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Why are you afraid of some other not very powerful God? Like, why are you, why are you afraid of some sort of cheap imitation of a one true God? Like, you shouldn't be afraid of that God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who's all powerful. If I got Egypt, and I also got this God laying in front of you. But at the same time, I feel like it would be just as easy to say, verse 10, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Why would you worship anyone else? I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who did Mount Sinai with you. Like, I am your God. Why are you worshiping someone else? Either way, he ends, this prophet ends his message by saying, but you have not obeyed me. Okay, as we read that, maybe it jumps out to you, maybe it doesn't, but a lot of commentators feel like that is kind of cut off. Like, like normally a prophet would say what? You have not obeyed God, therefore, here comes your punishment. Right? Like, if you don't obey God, here, I'm, I'm letting you know. Jonah says, like, you're horrible people. You're not doing what God wants. You're gonna, your city's going to be destroyed. Right? We, we want that from this prophet. We want, hey, what's going to happen? You haven't obeyed him. What's going to happen? He doesn't say that. Why? I think because you're already living in it. The punishment that you are, like, punishment for not obeying him, this, this life that you've chosen apart from God, you're already in the midst of it, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 28. Like, you're here. You're in it. I don't have to tell you what's coming because you're, you're here. Okay, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord, someday we'll talk more about it, that's Jesus, came and sat under the oak that is in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, and his son Gideon, who was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our father told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Okay, let's just pause there. We'll, we'll pick it back up as, as God would respond. Okay, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I just find it interesting. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak. Sounds a little bit familiar to Deborah. I mean, hers was a palm tree. I feel like palm tree makes me think like sipping out of a coconut. Oak tree makes me think like eating a huge turkey leg with like a sword on your side. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, oak tree, palm tree, sitting under a tree. Anyway, uh, here's the angel of the Lord who would, who would say to Gideon. What does he say in verse 12? He says, the Lord is with you. And then he says, O valiant warrior. Okay, Gideon's name. We've talked about a lot of names. His name means hewer. Like, I had to go look up what that meant. Uh, but it's this idea of, like, shaping wood or stone or something else. But most likely in, in Gideon's life, it'd be shaping wood. 
So like hand-hewn, right? You hear that phrase. Okay, so it's the guy who works with wood. Okay? He says, you're Gideon. You have this name of working with wood, most likely, maybe stone. Uh, and he says, what does he call him now, though? He says, I call you now valiant warrior. Where is Gideon when the angel of the Lord appears to him? Text tells us. He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Why is he beating out wheat in a wine press? Because he's scared. Because Midian's more powerful. Because Midian's going to come take his food. So this is his best attempt to hide what he's doing. And he's trying to get food for his family, for himself. So he's going to beat out the wheat in the wine press. When, when God comes to him and says, Gideon, who are you? You're a valiant warrior. No one reads this story and is like, oh yeah, yeah. Gideon, valiant warrior, as he's hiding in, in fear, beating out wheat in a wine press. The Hebrew word for valiant warrior can mean strong, uh, would be valiant. That word valiant is strong. And then warrior is, is brave man. Like two words in English, one word in Hebrew, strong, brave man, or strong, mighty man. Right? That's the exact opposite of how God finds it. So this isn't necessarily like, oh, hey, I found the strongest guy I could find. No, you found a guy who was scared in a wine press. And yet God has a different name for you. God's, God's letting you know, hey, this is how I'm going to use you. What is Gideon's response to all of this? He says, oh, my Lord, if, if the Lord is with us, right? Notice he says, the Lord is with you. And, and Gideon's response to the Lord being with you is what? If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Like, where, where's all his miracles that our father told us about? Like, he brought us out of Egypt, and yet now we're stuck in the hands of Midian. Like, like can we just pause and say, Gideon, like, as we read these words, Gideon, we've all been there. Like, we've all been there. Like, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And we know Romans 8, and yet we struggle because, like, God, if, if you're for us, why in the world am I in this situation? Why in the world am I in this sort of relationship that's falling apart? Why am I in this, this debt? Why am I in this? Like, like what in the world has happened that, that has put us here? And so as I read Gideon saying, if God is for us, then why has all this happened to us? At some level, like, my heart goes out to him, and it, like, breaks. It's like, Gideon, I get it. And yet at some level, I got Deuteronomy 28 in the back of my mind. It's like, Gideon, you should have known better. Like, you talk about Egypt, but, but you forgot to mention the golden calf. Like, like, if you turn and you worship other gods and you do other things, God's not just going to put up with that. He's not just going to let you serve other gods. He's going to bring you back to himself. Okay, what does God say? God did, actually doesn't really answer his, his question of why would you let this happen. Middle there of verse 13. But now the Lord, uh, sorry, he continues. The Lord has banner and has given him a hand of Verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength. Your strength? Like, that seems weird. Like, the guy hiding in the wine press, not seemingly strong. Go in your strength. Deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my, in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that is, uh, is you, uh, that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me until I come back and bring you my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you turn. Okay, so here's this conversation. God says, you're a valiant warrior. Gideon's like, yeah, not really. Uh, how am I the one who's going to deliver Israel? He goes, what? I'm, I'm from a small family and a small tribe. I'm a nobody from a nobody family and a nobody tribe. Right? Like, God, like you're not going to use me. Like, as you think about who's going to deliver Israel, who's going to rise up, who's God can use, it's like my background, my pedigree, whatever you want to say, is, is not very good, God. And I feel like, again, where are we at in, in the story of the Bible? We're in Judges, and yet does this not just sound like Exodus? 
God says to Moses, hey, I'm going to raise you up to deliver my people. And Moses is like, eh, I'm not the right guy for that job. Right? What, so we continue, though. What, what do we see in verse 16? Verse 16, but the Lord says to him, surely I will be with you. Again, hyperlink in the Bible. That's what God says to Moses. That's what God says to Joshua. That is what God is now saying to Gideon. Hyperlink, fast forward to the New Testament. That's what Jesus Christ himself says to the disciples in Matthew 28. Right, like this is the promise that, that, that is more than all the other promises. Right, like this promise is greater, I think, than any other. Like you, you want to be sure of victory? God's with you. Okay, sure to victory. Like that's all we need, right? And so what does he ask for? He asks for a sign. Verse 19, we're going to just kind of read through the sign uh, here we go. Verse 19. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and eleven bread from an ephah of flour. He made a meat into a basket and a broth. He brought it back to the oak tree, presented it to this angel of God. The angel of God said, take the meat, lay it on this rock, pour out the broth. He did so. The angel of the Lord put the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. The angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Verse 22. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, O Lord God, for I have now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon builds an altar. Okay, verses 22 and 23. He realizes that he's having a conversation with God. And what is his response? His response is fear to the point that God would say back to him, the Lord says to him what? Peace, do not fear. But he doesn't just stop at do not fear. He says, do not fear. Why? You're not going to die. Dale Davis, that we, I've quoted a lot in this series, and I don't necessarily mean to, but I, he just says it so much better than anyone else. Uh, Dale Davis says this. Let me find it in my notes. We West, Western Christians do not understand Gideon's agony, verse 22. Such talk is strange to us. We long to reach our warm hand through the print of the Bible page, pat Gideon's shoulder, soothe him with, don't worry, brother Gideon. God's not really scary like that. If only you had a New Testament. A pained, perplexed look would come over Gideon as if he just heard a theological ignoramus. And so he did. This sort of talk, verse 22 into verse 23, is strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror or awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. Let me say that one more time. There's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. But thankfully, Gideon knew better. Nothing more assuring than God's I will be with you. Nothing is more overwhelming than the fact that it's God who says it. Like Gideon comes face to face with God and there's this fear of his holiness and this, this understanding that I am not holy. And I feel like we've entered a culture, as he would say, this Western Christians, where God is, is, is a friend, no other friend like Jesus, like, like we can agree with that, and yet at some level we've wiped away his holiness. And we miss the grace because we don't have the holiness. All right, let's keep going. Verse 25. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull 
Then a second bull, seven years old, and I will pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which, should, uh, which, you, sh- which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day. He did it by night. Okay, so what happens is he goes and he tears down the altar of Baal. Okay, I just want to make this one quick comment and then we'll get back into the story. I feel like Gideon here sees this awesomeness of God. Like he's, he's, there's this fear, there's this amazement and this wonder of, of who God is and that he just interacted with him. And so when God says, hey, I need you to tear down the altar of Baal, even though he's afraid to do it, right? He's going to do it at night because he's too afraid to do it during the day. Even though he's afraid, he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Okay, Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a picture of the holiness of God. And what is his response? His response is, God, here am I, like, use me. He doesn't even know what the, he doesn't even know what the mission is yet, but he's like, I got a glimpse of God's holiness. And now here's this idea of God, use me however you want. Okay, and, and our church and our, the life of us, like, what do we want? We want people to be in the word. We want people to know the word. Why? Because we want people to know God. Because I feel like when we have a right knowledge of who God is, then comes this right lifestyle. Here comes this, God, I'll do whatever you want. God, God, take whatever you want, give whatever, like, God, my life is yours. And in and, and a culture that I feel like so often either, either it goes, we're going to force some lifestyle on you through church, or, or so much like we don't care what your lifestyle looks like, I feel like there's some sort of hopefully balance in the middle that says, no, we want to know God. And as we get a glimpse of God, it's God, here's my life. You want me to go do something hard? Tail down altars of Baal? I got you. Is it okay if I do it at night, though? Like, there's still fear. They're still trembling. But like, but God, I, I've seen you. I've known you. All right, here we go. Okay, this to me is mind-blowing. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down. The Asherah, as we talked about a little bit, but it's a pole, a wooden pole to the uh, goddess there of, of their people. Okay, And the second bowl offered on the altar, which had been built, they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched and inquired about it, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son, that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the astral which was beside it. Okay, can we, just, can we just make observation? You're hiding in a cave? You're beating wheat in a wine press? Like, like what has this Baal God done for you the last seven years? Like, like what deliverance has he brought? Like, what good? At, like, in my, in my reading of the story, it's like, hey guys, uh, you've missed it? Like, he's tearing down the altar of a false god to build an altar to the one true God, and you're upset that the one who, can, who led you out of Egypt and the one who's going to lead you out of Midian is the one he's trying to worship. And yet, I feel like, is that not us? Like, like God works through our Bible reading, through a discussion group, through a sermon, whatever it is. Like, God's working in our life, and it's like, hey, you can have more of God. You can follow him better. You can have more of a, a better relationship with him, but it's going to require some sort of sacrifice. You're going to have to tear down some sort of altar over here. So social media or sports or money or whatever that altar is. And it's like we get so mad at God that to have more of him, i got to get rid of this. It's like, do we not, do we not realize who, who this is? Do we not realize the God that this is? Like, the one who saved us is not just Egypt, but for eternity, like Jesus dying on a cross. It's like we get so upset when someone wants to, to, to mess up my altar over here. Like we are so often these men who, who are mad that Gideon would tear down an, an, an altar to a false god to try and bring the people back to the true God. Joash's father says what? In verse 31, Joash said to all who stand against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? 
Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he, that is Baal, if Baal is God, let him contend for himself because someone has tore down his altar. Therefore, on that day, uh, he named him, that would be Gideon, Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he's torn down his altar. So what does dad say? Dad says, hey, if Baal's as big as you think he is, then, then Baal can take care of Gideon. You don't have to. It works. They leave him alone. Let Baal contend with him. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over the camp in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and blew a trumpet. And the Abarazites, who uh, were called together to follow him, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh. They were called to follow him and Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali and they, they came up to meet him. Okay. Um, the valley of Jezreel. We're going to talk about geography more later. Not this message. But... It's in there for a reason. I feel like we talk about it once in a discussion group, once or twice. We'll, we'll, we'll dive more into the geography in a little bit. Not today. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry all, on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he rose up early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me t make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. And let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was not dry on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. Okay, this is our last story this morning. I, I feel like... Growing up, uh, this story of fleece was one of two options. It was either like, uh, it's okay to test God and, and use a fleece. And there was another sermon that said Gideon was a horrible person for using a fleece. Here's the struggle that we talked about in the intro. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe the biggest hint is when, when Gideon says what? Don't let your anger burn against me. So maybe Gideon feels like, hey, I probably shouldn't need another sign, but I'm going to ask you for another one. Okay, but, but here's, here's a couple of things. And, and, and next week, we probably won't be able to defend Gideon as much, so I'm going to try to do some of that today. Uh, verse 33, when it says, then all the many nights, and talks about this army gathering. Some people think verse 33 is like the next morning. Baal gets, Baal, altar Baal torn down. Next morning, here's this army assembly. And some commentators say, this could have been years. Like, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say the next morning. or okay. So this could have been like, hey, there, here's a rock that consumes your food that God does, and then he vanishes, and you were, like, blown away by that. So the point that you would go and tear down an altar of Baal, like, that could have been months ago. It could have been a year ago. I feel like we read the story, and we just automatically assume it was about two days ago, and now Gideon's already doubting. Uh, okay, so there's that. Secondly, Midian's powerful. Like, just duly noted. It's not like it's like, hey, here's the, here's the kindergarten class from the local elementary school. I need you to go to overpower them. Like, no, this is a powerful army. Okay? And, and so then we get to the fleece, and it's like, okay, here's where I feel like we're trying to figure out, is a fleece a good thing or is a fleece a bad thing? And, like, we're trying to work through that. And, again, I, I said I'd quote Dale too much. We're going to quote him again. Uh, here's, here's where Dale, I feel like, takes the shift from what are we supposed to do with this to how does God respond. And, and again, we want the book of Judges not to be about Israel and their sin. We want the book of Judges to be more about God and his response. So here's God. God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. 
He is patient with our weakness. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith, our wavering grip on his word. Like, if, if that's what we're supposed to leave with this fleece, at least some level, like, a, a, some picture is not like, hey, you should do fleeces, or you shouldn't do fleeces, or Gideon's horrible faith, or Gideon had good faith. Like, like if we could just leave that behind for a second, and be like, here's a guy who's okay with a guy who needs a second sign, maybe a third sign, depending on how you want to handle the first one. Like, we're okay with a guy who says, hey, you're a nobody from a nobody tribe and, and a nobody family. Like, I can use you. And, and I'm going to be patient with you, and I'm going to be long-suffering with you, and I'm going to reassure you, and I'm going to go with you. Like, if we can land there, somewhere near that in Judges 6, doesn't matter what your background looks like, doesn't matter what your failures look like, doesn't matter, like, God's doing a work, and he wants to do it in you, and he wants to do it through you, and, and like, praise God for that, then, then I feel like, cool. Like, should we use a fleece, should we not use a fleece? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But I do think it gives us a picture of a God who says, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm with you. I'm listening. Gideon says, like, if God was here with us, like, none of this would have happened. And I feel like God, in verses 36 to the end, is this picture of, like, guys, no, I am here. And I am listening. And, and I'm going to reassure you as many times as you need it. But kind of like Moses, I'm not going to let you go. Like, you're the one I've chosen. You're the one that, that's going to rise up and deliver Israel. And so, so whatever we need, Gideon, like, here we go. Let's, let's reassure you. Let's, let's strengthen your faith. And so for us, like, as we read the story of Gideon, like, man, I, I feel like, again, we're trying to keep moving through Judges, so we're not in Judges for the next 52 weeks or so. Uh, and so all of chapter 6 was maybe too much to bite off at one time. That's fine, because next week we're going to bite off more. Um, but I feel like there's this picture of, like, at some level, we're, we're like Gideon. At some level, we're like the, the men in the city. And at some level, we all have this weak, not great faith. And I feel like we put some sort of pressure on us that our faith's not good enough, so therefore God's not pleased. And yet that's not the story that I just read here. Like it's obvious that Gideon's faith is, is a little bit weak. He has to go at night. He has to have two versions of the fleece. And yet God doesn't just leave him. He doesn't just abandon him. He doesn't even say he's angry. Like Gideon's worried that he might be angry, but, but we see no evidence of God being angry. So, so hopefully this morning there's some sort of encouragement of here's a God who loves and rescues and hears and listens and responds and wants to build and strengthen your faith. Which I feel like is so different than some of the stories that I hear of Gideon where it's like you have bad faith and God's so displeased with you. Like, no, we have, we have weak and little faith and yet Jesus says you just need it of a mustard seed. So, so, so it's not like you need awesome and amazing faith to please God, uh, but there is some sort of response. Anyway, uh, let's pray. Gideon's coming more next week, so we'll continue the story next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this story. We thank you for what it reveals, that once again, Israel falls into sin. Once again, they turn away from you, and once again, you listen to their cries. God, you are patient with Israel to the point that, that we would read through Judges. We're only in chapter 6, and yet we're going we're gonna to continue to see their sin. We're going to continue to see their downfall. And so you're patient to the point that, that you look crazy. Like, that you look unbelievable. Why would you keep doing it? Why would you keep delivering? And yet, God, you do the same with us. You continue to, to, to convict. Your spirit is continually with us. You do not leave us. You do not forsake us. And so, God, this morning, may, may you turn our hearts to you. May you help us to love you more. God, whatever altar that we set up in our life, 
of comfort or money or whatever that looks like. God, help us to tear down those altars. Help us to, to follow you better. Help us to be better servants for you. God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.